That passage from Philippians 2 leads right into our celebration of communion. The words that I'm drawn to are the ones that describe Jesus and his self-sacrifice on our behalf. Uh, Paul writes of Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Of course, we know that the, on the other side of the cross, Jesus rose again as well. And this morning, we're going to celebrate communion together. Why do we do this? Because it brings us back to those moments when we first experience and understand the grace of God that we receive through Jesus and that he literally died for our sins, he died to give us a new way of life and a whole new lease on life. So let me pray very quickly and, and we'll celebrate together. God, our Father, wherever we are in our homes and in our small gatherings, we pray today that you will unite our hearts, bring us back to those moments when we remember who Jesus is, on the great sacrifice that he has offered on our behalf, and that he's taken our sins away. So we thank you in his name. It says in the scriptures that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Of course, it wouldn't be until after the resurrection a few days later that they would even understand what he meant. But we do this in memory, looking back at the cross from where we are today. When we eat this, we are acknowledging that Jesus has come in the flesh and that he gave that up for your sake and mine. Let's eat in remembrance of Jesus. The scriptures also tell us that on that night as he gathered with his disciples and they celebrated the Passover, that he took a cup of wine and he, he shared it with them. And after he'd done so, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood and he invited them to drink it, and that every time they or we drink this, to think back and to remember Jesus. So what do we re remember? We remember his covenant with us. We remember that his blood covers our sins, and it takes away our shame, and uh, that Jesus also rose from the dead. He was victorious over all of these things. We remember, but we also look forward, because he said the next time, that he would drink from the fruit of the vine would be in the kingdom of heaven at the table that the Lord has prepared and at a great celebration. And so we also drink in anticipation that one day all of those who are trusting in Jesus who have this new life that he came to offer will one day be seated at that table and will be part of that celebration. Let's drink in remembrance of our Lord Jesus. Father God, allow this not only to be an act of remembrance, but an act of renewal as you revive our spirits and continue to connect us to Jesus and to make that faith and that memory alive on a daily basis as we serve you, as we try to live in imitation of Jesus, as we try to learn from him. Holy Spirit, guide us forward in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, our message this morning is the third part of our recalculating series, and it's called Adopting a New Mindset. I don't know if you have noticed, but some people can very easily change their minds. Army chaplain Kerry Haynes tells of the story of a guy who emailed his ex-fiance. Dearest Susan, I've been so desolate ever since I broke off our engagement. Simply devastated. Won't you please consider coming back to me? You hold a special place in my heart that no other woman can possibly fill. I could never find another woman quite like you. I need you so much. Won't you forgive me and let us make a new beginning? I love you so. Yours always, John. And then at the bottom of the letter, John included a postscript. It said, P.S., congratulations on winning the lottery. Now, John was trying unsuccessfully, I might add, to convince Susan to change her mind. Very closely tied up with this notion of recalculating is the idea of changing one's mind or thoughts or direction. Today in our recalculating series, we're going to look at a section of Paul's letter to the Philippian church where the Apostle Paul zeroes in on a powerful call for Christians to embrace and to practice a complete change of mindset. Welcome back to North River Church. I'm glad you're here today. In this series, we've been looking at the way that the Apostle Paul was recalculating his priorities and his methods for ministry. Our hope is that week by week, we can identify principles that help us to recalculate our pathway forward, carrying out the mission of Jesus while we live in the midst of a challenging time that is marked by dramatic change and even chaos. Since the middle of March, whether you realize it or not, you and I have been recalculating the daily patterns of our lives. So here's the key idea that I want to give you right up front. The big idea for today is we become more like Jesus when we imitate Jesus. It sounds simple, but there's so much more in that thought. Now, you need to realize, first of all, that this was a radical idea. This entire uh, new mindset was a radical idea. Why is that so? Well, the first reason is that ancient cultures considered humility to be a sign of weakness. So Paul writes in verse 5, In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind as Christ Jesus had. Perhaps the most important verse in this section of Scripture is Philippians 2, verse 5. The reason this is important is that it includes a command addressed to everyone who reads the letter have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had. In common conversation today, we would call this a mindset. The Apostle Paul is telling us, since Christian life is about becoming united with Jesus and then following Jesus, we need to adopt the same mindset that we see in Jesus. And then what follows is is a description of the incredible humility that we see in Jesus. Christians reading this today are not shocked by that thought. We often think of Jesus as being a a humble servant and a humble teacher. But that also may mean that we do not fully understand the radical nature of this command as it appeared to the original audience back in the first century. When Paul wrote these words, they were seen as a radical idea because ancient cultures considered humility as a sign of weakness. Roman philosopher Seneca was a contemporary of Jesus, and he was considered one of the leading intellectual figures in the Roman Empire. 
He saw Jesus' crucifixion as evidence of his humiliation. And by that, he meant a negative term, humiliation, meaning Jesus being dragged down into lowness, that he wasn't somebody who was lofty and grand. Australian theologian John Dixon explains this in his 2011 book, Humilitas. The subtitle is A Lost Key to Life, Love, and Leadership. He explains that the Greeks loved honor and saw the pursuit of honor as an elite goal in life. In this honor versus shame culture, quote, humility was rarely if ever considered virtuous, unquote. Dixon then adds this observation. Within decades of Paul's letter to the Philippian Christians, they were, re- they were regularly emphasizing humility as a central characteristic of this ethical life of the Christian. Now, the second reason why this is a radical mindset, a radical thought, is that the cross redefined greatness and humility in the world. So the back half of verse 5 says, have the same attitude of mind as Christ Jesus had. That's really the concept that we're looking at here this morning. How do we develop this specific same attitude that Jesus had? And the apostle is telling us that this is what Christians do. And we know that by the time he was writing this in 60 AD, that the early church was embracing this message. The Roman and Greek ethical systems prioritized honor that comes through merit. In other words, everything is about what you earn in life. The main idea was that if you experienced honor, then you earned it. So for them, humility means lowliness. It was the stuff of servants and slaves and and nothing you ever wanted applied to your own life. It certainly wasn't the description of those who gained respect. And then along come Jesus, who says a number of amazing things like blessed are the poor in spirit. Or whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant, Mark 10, 43. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all, Mark 10, 44. And then he adds to that, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Same chapter, verse 45. In the realm of history, ideas, and worldviews, Jesus redefined the concept of greatness. This was a completely new idea in his time. During his ministry years, Jesus taught that the true path to greatness came in serving others first, that the true path to greatness came through self-sacrifice. When he died, his followers had to overcome the fact that Jesus' death on a Roman cross had brought him to what was considered to be the lowest place possible in the mindset of the Greek and Roman world. In other words, that the cross was not only an instrument of torture and death, it was a great insult and brought shame in the minds of Roman people. This called for a shift of thinking. First century Christians faced one of two conclusions about Jesus. Either Jesus was not as great as they thought he was, or... The whole idea of greatness in their minds had been wrong and needed to be redefined based on what they had learned from Jesus. All of Jesus' disciples had to grapple with this. It's why the cross became so central in their teaching. The Apostle Paul was the first one to articulate this new way of looking at the concept of humility. And that happened in about A.D. 60 when he wrote this letter to the Philippian church. 
So I'd like to talk with you about five ways that we can imitate Jesus, because the primary command in this passage is for you and me to have the same mindset as we see in Jesus. Five ways that we can imitate Jesus. Here's the first. By prioritizing and practicing like-mindedness. Verse 2 says, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Paul employs a series of complementing concepts to drive his point across here. Being like-minded, being of one mind, having the same mindset. When we do this, we remind each other of our common goals as Christians. When we do this, our mutual love and oneness of spirit put a check on our disappointments with each other. We take a breath and step back so that we don't break that spirit. It's not that we don't at times disagree or fight for what we believe is important or right, but we hold off from damaging words, from cheap shots that wound, or from attacking in ways that make relationships difficult to restore or to repair. To actually live this way demands that we prioritize and then practice like-mindedness. Again, it doesn't mean absolute agreement at all times. It means that we choose to put aside our disputes in order to focus on our main goals and our, our commonalities. This leads me to think that every ministry team, every staff team, every small group fellowship becomes a laboratory, a laboratory for testing and working out our commitment to prioritizing and practicing like-mindedness. Not a laboratory for perfection, but a laboratory for testing this out that we can actually put first things first and let second things go. We will not always agree with the ideas or approaches of others. There will be times when decisions don't go your way or my way. But if we, if we are committed to the discipline that Scripture calls us to in Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11, then we won't just walk away and give up. We'll pursue understanding in a spirit of love. We will assume the best in each other and try to build each other up and find a way to move forward. So again, we become more like Jesus when we imitate Jesus. Here's the second way. The first was by prioritizing and practicing like-mindedness. And the fifth way we can imitate Jesus is by developing personal humility. So Paul goes on in the next verse, verse 3, and he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. In our age of self-promoters and self-promotion, this is a huge wake-up call. What Paul writes here in verse 3 goes against the very grain of our contemporary culture. Remember, this was true of the Greek culture in the first century world as well. The concept of humility was not highly regarded. Bible commentator Walter Grunman observed that the Greek concept of the free man led to contempt for any kind of self-imposed limitation or subjection. In contrast, the Bible tells us that humbling ourselves before God and being under the control of the Holy Spirit is praiseworthy. Self-interest says, this has to go my way. Self-ambition says, I will use this occasion to make a name for myself. So Paul offers us an exercise in humility. He says, in humility, value others above yourselves. 
Now, that doesn't mean that you have to have a, a low value of yourself. It rather means that we have a higher value that we place in our minds and our hearts of everyone else. To do this, we have to take the time to get inside the, the minds of others in order to understand them and where they're coming from. It makes it necessary for us to slow down and refuse to imply motives to other people. Valuing others in humility means that we refuse to become easily offended even in the midst of a disagreement. So what exactly is humility? It doesn't mean being a doormat for everyone else. Humility is a quality of being courteously respectful to others, even when you disagree. Jesus is our great example when it comes to humility. He was strong and faithfully pursued his purpose and mission. He even, uh, but, but even though he knew that he was the son of God, he didn't use that status to power up on people. Jesus found joy in sharing a meal or spending time with people of lower positions in life, and he did that often and regularly. Again, we become more like Jesus when we imitate Jesus. Here's a third way that we become more like Jesus, by tending more to the interests of others. It doesn't mean that you don't take care of your own business, but we tend more to the needs of others or the interests of others. Verse 4 tells us about this. Paul goes on and he says, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. I wish we had a manual for this, explaining exactly how to do it in every situation. But life doesn't work that way. This challenge runs upstream against the grain of our me first, my rights culture. It doesn't mean that our interests are of no concern, but that the interests of others should be a fair measure above our concerns. I know what this feels like when you meet someone who has mastered this trait. I met a man a number of years ago and I enjoyed being in his presence or going to his home or sitting in his office. I remember being in his presence and noticing that he never brought himself up in conversation. Truth is, he had a very, had a very interesting life and a very interesting job and a brilliant mind, but he constantly and gently ask questions about what the other people in the conversation were learning or about how their lives were going. He was comfortable letting other people talk about their lives and exploring their ideas. And if he found something he could do to encourage or to help someone along, he did it. So we note that Jesus made a habit of noticing others and meeting needs. Not to the, to the exclusion of his prayer life, not in a way that pulled him off mission, but he stopped to meet the needs of other people, even on his way to Jerusalem, even on the way to the cross. We become more like Jesus when we imitate Jesus. The fourth way we do this is by adopting the posture of servanthood. And so Paul brings up that concept. If we go a bit farther into uh, this section of Scripture, starting with verse 6, it speaks of Jesus and says, Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Through a masterful choice of repeated words, the Apostle Paul teaches us here that there are two things that we should take notice of. The first is that Jesus was in very nature God. And the second is that Jesus was also, in very nature, 
a servant. Paul's combination of these two concepts teaches us that being a servant is not antithetical for God. It is not despite the fact that he was in very nature God that Jesus came as a servant. Paul is letting us know it is because Jesus was in very nature God that he came as a servant. To much of the first century world, that would have absolutely shocked them to talk about Father God, the Creator, as one who serves. But the Bible introduces us to a God who's been serving from the very moment of creation, putting things in place so that you and I could enjoy this amazing world that is all around us with all of its rich resources. Therefore, people who reflect God and who imitate Jesus naturally serve others. That's what he's saying. As your spirit is changed to become more like Jesus, as my spirit is changed to become more like Jesus, as our minds become more like Jesus, we will serve others more naturally. Someone else has said that we like the concept of serving until we are treated like servants. I remember learning this lesson one time when I worked as a painter during a summer break from college. My boss was a tough World War II veteran who had served under General Patton in the Battle of the Bulge. But when he became a Christian about 25 years after the war, his personality, which could be rough and demanding, grew a softer side. One day he gave me an assignment. It was working in the home of a very elderly woman who probably had some form of dementia and whose home had been damaged by a fire. In the painting world, we called these fire jobs, and fire jobs were never pleasant. This job involved using various paint products in order to seal up the damage of the fire so that the house didn't smell so bad. But that wasn't the hardest part. Because of all these factors, this lady had not cleaned the house in years and never opened the windows. She was afraid, and the stench inside her home was absolutely horrific. I literally had to grab another t-shirt and tie it across my face and nose in order to get the job done, and I was trapped in there all day long. When he dropped me off, my boss explained to me what I was going to find, and then he took me aside and said, Paul, you're the guy that I want to put on this job. It's not going to be easy. I want you to know that I don't make any money on a job like this. We do this simply because there's no one else to help, and it's the right thing to do. My boss's name was Whitey, and that was his way of demonstrating humility in the course of doing business. And he was passing that on to some of the guys who worked for him. We become more like Jesus when we imitate Jesus or when we imitate somebody else who's imitating Jesus. We can measure their ways and we can learn from their lessons. And then there's one more fifth way that we can become more like Jesus by embracing that with God, the way up is down. Jesus acted in a countercultural way. So following him is a countercultural act. With Jesus, down is the way up. In our day, I guess we might say, down is the new up. And so the scriptures here tell us that he humbled himself, even to the point of death, even to death on a despised cross. But the Lord exalted him to the highest place and has given him the highest name. The implication is that we follow the example of Jesus. In the end, we will share in the glory of Jesus too. When you read verses 6 through 11 of this chapter, most of our Bibles set these verses off as if quoting 
from a poem. Do you know why that is? One possible thought is that Paul took the time to capture these words in a creative form. And so they're listed here almost as a, as a work of art or a poem. A second possibility that scholars uh, think of when they read this passage is that these words may have formed the earliest Christian creed of the church. And so that people in the first century churches were reading these words together, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. If you happen to notice, those verses are put together in three strands of three. And so there's an opening line in each section and then two lines that modify each one. But then verses 9, 10, and 11 come right after that. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is every na- above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Those three verses are in, in, in doublets. In other words, two lines, one that starts and another one that immediately follows it. So we have these, this triple pattern and then this double pattern. It may well be that that was the refrain of a song. And so the third possibility is that this wasn't just a creed of the early church, but some of the scholars think that this was one of the earliest praise songs of the earliest Christian church. And so Jesus is celebrated among the people of God who recognize that we become more like Jesus when we imitate Jesus. I'd like to invite you to ponder that thought throughout the day because ultimately the effectiveness of North River Church isn't about how many people watch this service online or how many people sit inside the building or how many programs we have or what movement we belong to or what denomination you may have come from. The only thing that ultimately makes a church effective is if people really come to know Jesus and walk in his grace. And the longer that we are together, that we actually begin to imitate Jesus and we become more like Jesus. That's the ultimate test. It's the ultimate goal. It matters more than anything else. It's what I long for myself and what I long for you. And we will get things wrong and we will make mistakes along the way. But know this. We become more like Jesus when we imitate Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this wonderful passage of Scripture that we find here in Philippians chapter 2 with its beautiful descriptions of the life of Jesus and with its challenge that if we find any comfort and joy in him, then that we will naturally begin to copy the patterns that we see in the life of Jesus. Lord, I I pray one simple prayer for us as a church today. Make us more like Jesus. Make us less like churchy people and more like Jesus. Make us in some ways less like our culture and more like Jesus, because Jesus calls us to, an anti, to a countercultural life. And we pray for our world and our culture, that our world will become more of a place of healing and understanding and truth, and more of a place that seeks after the image of Jesus. 
Thank you in his name. Amen. Thanks for coming today. We're so, so grateful.